Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be taking a look at a classic debate from a personal friend of mine who debated Matt Dillahunty. This is an exciting debate, and it's a very different and interesting debate because a lot of things get brought up that you don't typically hear get brought up in these debates because Michael Icona, um, who is one of the top three resurrection scholars in the world, Oxford University Press published scholar, uh, professor at Houston Baptist's uh, University, is, um, is laying out some things unashamedly, unabashedly, boldly laying out some things that I think some apologists and maybe some Christians, even in the pews, are afraid to go near and afraid to talk about. But we're going to talk about them today because Mike talked about them, and um, it's going to be exciting. So this debate was uh, at Austin Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. I was actually there. It was the first time I ever met Matt Dillahunty was, was here. He came to one of my breakout sessions and was very nice, very kind guy. Gave me some positive notes on uh, the talk after I got done. Um, so friendly guy. We, we got to meet there, and um, ever since, I, I've, I've enjoyed Matt as a person whenever we met. So it was, it was a great time, and then this debate happened, and it, was, it threw everyone for a loop. I remember sitting with another well-known apologist, uh, and we were like, what is going on? This is a completely different direction from how Mike typically uh, debates. And it's been controversial for exactly that reason. There are people out there that think that, that, that Mike shouldn't have done what he did. So I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. What Mike did, especially those of you that have seen the debate, you know, is he he, he basically argued. Like, and here's one of the things that I want to take away from this. I don't think I don't know if Matt. I'm sorry. I don't know if Mike actually thought much about this. But within Christian apologetic circles, there are different approaches to how we uh, do apologetics. There are presuppositionalists. There are classical apologists. There are evidentialists. There are cumulative case and reformed epistemology advocates. And so you have these different approaches to how you do apologetics. Well, wh one, of the, one of the differences between classical apologists like William Lane Craig and what are typically called evidential apologists like Mike Lycona or Gary Habermas or people like that is that the evidentialist uh, thinks, if I can present a compelling case for the resurrection of Jesus, then God's existence is going to be the likely explanation for that. It's, it's going to go without saying that there's a God who exists who have raised Jesus from the dead, or something along those lines. A classical apologist, and I consider myself to be one, say no. First, we need to argue that God exists, and then we have a great candidate explanation for Jesus rising from the dead. The plausibility of the resurrection is much greater because, of course, Jesus raising naturally from the dead is incredibly implausible, but it's not implausible if God raised Jesus from the dead, because if God can create the universe for nothing, then raising Jesus from the dead, that's small potatoes for him. So, uh, But what Mike did here is he didn't exactly give a case for God's existence, but he did something very similar that I think probably puts him in a classical apologetic approach for this debate. And that is that first he argues um, that, the that, that there is a supernatural dimension to reality. In fact, he, he even says, uh, he says, I've got two major contentions here, two major points I want to make. That, there, that empirical data, empirical data strongly suggests reality has a supernatural dimension. And then two, historical data suggests Jesus rose from the dead. So whereas typically he would go right into the historical data for the resurrection, he actually tries to up the, the plausibility here. And we're going to talk about that by arguing first that there seems to be this supernatural dimension to reality, making it more likely that something like a resurrection is possible. Now, this, is, this means that he brings in some things that make people a little bit uncomfortable. The first thing that he brings in is paranormal experiences. He talks about some people playing with a Ouija board and suddenly a trash can lid flies up against the, uh, you know, the wall. Um, he talks about some other things talks about near-death experiences and the journal article data and the, the literature that, that is out there on that. Um, he talks about apparitions, people seeing an apparition of a person. Um, and he talks about extreme examples of answered prayer. Now, um, for my personal apologetic purposes, I've used near-death experiences before because, I mean, what more do you want? He's right. It's scientific data that we have because it's often reported by atheist medical professionals moments after the person is resuscitated. So, I mean, what, what more do you want? It's um, it's recent. It, it, you can you can go and talk to these people. You can you could 
possibly do tests related to this. It's uh, confirmed by external sources. Um, and I've also used, in addition to NDEs, extreme answered prayer, because I think that is a pretty impressive thing. If we have examples of prayer, uh, prayers being answered, he, he calls them class A and class B prayers. Uh, I, I forget which one he says, but let's say class B prayers are prayers that are answered um, that are uh, that, that are not that impressive, like like to the individual experiencing them. Yeah, it was an answer to prayer, but but you could chalk it up to coincidence if you're trying to take a skeptical eye. But for the individual, but for a class A prayer, an individual reports and and it's this is testable where something is extreme, and we're going to look at an example of that. Like it's really unlikely. Uh, in fact, it gets more unlikely to say that it was not an answer to prayer. So we're we're going to take a look at those. So of these four things that he gives, paranormal experiences, near death experiences, apparitions and extreme answer prayer I've used and will probably in the future use near death experiences and extreme answer to prayer. I've, I never have and never would have used paranormal experiences or apparitions, but that doesn't mean I think this was a bad thing to do in a debate. Why? Well, you're never going to convince your opponent with paranormal experiences, especially someone like Matt Dillahunty. Aha, but what's the point of a debate? Um, while I said in my debate with Matt, I would love it if Matt Dillahunty comes to Christ right here tonight on the basis of what I'm presenting. But typically someone like him in a debate, especially in a debate, you're kind of dug into your position. I think it's very unlikely uh, that, I mean, God can do anything. But what the debate is really for is for that third party, the audience that is watching and listening, those students perhaps who are on the fence, and they've been told you've got to check your brain at the door to be a Christian or something like that. And what we can do is we can say, actually, no, there's really good reasons to be a Christian. <coughs> well, that third party that's watching, in most cases, in almost any crowd, there are going to be people who don't find it crazy, frankly, that paranormal experiences happen or that apparitions happen. Whatever you and I think, even as Christians, the average person is going to look at that and say, no, no I mean, that's I mean, it's out there for sure. But yeah, I think that's possible. And so the average person is going to find that to be a compelling reason to believe that there's a supernatural dimension to reality. And so if someone like Mike Lycona is convinced of that and is ready to talk about examples and evidence that points in that direction, well, that's all fair game, I think. Guess what, folks? We're Christians. We happen to believe there's a supernatural dimension to reality. And one of the things I love about this debate, and I promise we're going to get to clips in just a moment, but one of the things I love about this debate, and, and not a whole apologist would love this, but I love it, is I want to join Mike in being bold enough to say, uh, whenever the skeptic says something like and Matt Dillahunty says this in this debate and he said it many times and others have. Oh, well, if you if, if you uh, are a Christian because you believe in the eyewitness testimony and you believe in these historical things, well, then those standards of evidence are going to allow for all kinds of things. They're going to allow for beliefs in, in stuff like this, the, these four points that Mike lays out, like paranormal stuff and and maybe aliens and, and stuff like that. Now, uh, the alien thing is interesting and we'll come back to that in a moment, but the idea that there's supernatural paranormal type stuff, I get that you think that sounds crazy, but yeah, we believe there's a supernatural dimension to reality. And frankly, the more I've studied, the more I've seen, the more arguments I've seen, like the incredible arguments we have for God's existence, um, like the cosmological contingency, ontological, uh, teleological, moral arguments, the resurrection case that we have, um, all of these kind of things, in, in addition to my own experience of prayer and, and, and seeing the answered prayer and the extreme answered prayer and the near-death experience data and all those kind of things, Mm, I'm with the vast majority of the human race who thinks it's uh, it's it's it seems much more reasonable to believe that there's a God and there's a supernatural dimension to reality than this idea that, that that's not the case. In, in other words, I, I'm not saying that if you believe that you're unintelligent. No, I get it. We live in a culture where that sort of thing is being pushed on us. Naturalism is being pushed on us through television and through all kinds of other sources. But the truth is. I do want you to realize I don't come to this like I think some people do with this kind of, you know, uh, you know, sort of sappy, watered down. Well, you're right. I mean, this is out there, but I'm going to give you a reason why I believe this thing that's out there is actually true. No, no, no. The, the out there claim is is the idea that there is not a supernatural dimension to reality. Um, so we're going to. So, so I don't I don't have a problem with the thing that Mike did here. I, I think this is great because, for one thing, he's turning out to be a classical apologist in this debate like I am. And number two, I think he's bringing out stuff that typically doesn't get brought out and that needs to get brought out. So think whatever you want of me, but I'm a Christian. Expect me to believe Christian stuff. All right. OK, uh, so what I want to do and then he makes a case for the resurrection, by the way, and he, and he, he limits it primarily to Paul. 
Um, he used to do that in his debates, but um, then he expanded to the Gospels, and he's a great scholar of the Gospels now. But but he uh, he limited it, he limited it here to Paul, I think, so that he could, in terms of time, allow for this other case for the supernatural. So um, he basically builds his case off of Paul's testimony, First Corinthians fifteen, the early testimony there, and then Galatians chapter one. We can see that there is the the, the testimony. Okay, so in case there's somebody hasn't doesn't isn't aware of this, in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, in verses three through eight, what you have is uh, what is considered by scholars to be a creed of the early church. In other words, this is in creedal form, meant to be memorized. Well, First Corinthians is dated to the mid fifties A.D., the early to mid fifties. So this he had that already when he wrote the when he wrote first Corinthians. So that goes back earlier and we can make a case through Galatians and some other things that that uh, creedal statement actually goes back to within the first few years after the events in question, meaning that Christians were immediately after the resurrection, basically saying Jesus was dead, buried and rose again and appeared to these people and those people and these people over here. So what that means is we, we have early tes testimony about this. And so he basically builds his case off of those sorts of things. And, um, and, and it's great. But in this debate, that stuff doesn't really get talked about nearly as much as we might expect, because a lot of the focus ends up being on Matt's epistemology and on the supernatural claims. And so I, th I think that's where we want to where we want to focus our time as well, although we will get into a little bit about Paul. So um, with the first thing that I want to play for you, I, I want you to hear what he says about specifically, and you can watch the debate, it's linked in the description, and you can look at the paranormal experiences and the apparitions. But I want to provide you some of what Mike said in terms of near-death experiences and extreme answered prayer, and then I'm going to prove to you that actually when he brought this stuff out, it actually was convincing to at least someone. So let's listen to what he says about near-death experiences. Now there are tens of thousands of these near-death experiences, tens of thousands, and almost all of them cannot be confirmed. It's not to say they're false, they just can't be confirmed. And occasionally you'll find some where they're just, they, they're fraudulent, they lied about it. Okay, but there are about 300 cases, according to my friend and a mentor of mine, Gary Habermas, who has studied near-death experiences for 45 years, and he is on the editorial board for the Journal of Near-Death Studies. He says there's about 300 for which there are, is corroboration for what happened. There's a book that came out last year that's got about 200 of these. It's called The Self Does Not Die, and written by and contributed by uh, various near-death experience NDE experts. And in this, they said the, the one criterion that had to uh, be fulfilled to pass to have the story in this book is there had to be corroboration from at least one external source to corroborate what the NDE -er had seen and experienced. Uh, in other words, the, what they had learned. So about 200 of these, all right? So that's pretty cool. It seems to suggest that there's an afterlife of some sort and a spiritual dimension. Okay, so I want you to notice there, he's giving data that is uh, from experts. Now, in my book, Death is a Doorway, I actually include a few uh, near-death experiences, and I think I, link, or I, I give sources for uh, the Lancet Medical Journal and, and among others. Um, but it, it, my, so I've got my own criteria for what near-death experiences I think should be considered. I don't actually care what they say about the afterlife. I, I mean, I do care. It's interesting to me. But in terms what I'm looking for is, is there something evidential that, that indicates that we survive physical death? And so my criteria, I think I have four. Let's see if I can remember them. So um, there, there was um, that this, this was written up by a medical professional. Okay, I don't want to hear about this from some dad of some kid. You know, we've seen that before. Written up by a medical professional, and it's strongest if that medical professional is an unbeliever, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, second, recorded um, quickly or soon after the person is resuscitated. So it's not like three months later this person has had time to concoct a story. We want to hear about it pretty quickly. Um, uh, number three, it involves no contradictions because if it involves a contradiction, then it's impossible. Um, it could involve some amazing stuff, some supernatural stuff, but if there's something that is a literal contradiction, contradictions are impossible. So it wouldn't pass the coherence test. And, and, uh, and let's see, what's the fourth one? Oh, it needs to have something evidential, something we can check. And a lot of these things do. So we're going to listen now to an example of a story that he gives that I think probably matches those, those categories. So here's uh, one of them that he presented in the debate during his first rebuttal. There's this one example where this uh, mother was dying. She was in the hospital, ready to die, and she wanted to see 
or actually she didn't want to see her son. She was estranged from him. He had caused him great financial trouble. He wanted to see her. She refused. The daughter was with her mom in the hospital. The son was in a bar across from the hospital crying at the bar when all of a sudden his mom came walking in. She was dressed. She came in the bar. She saw him. She started walking toward him. He stood up. He said, Mom, what are you doing here? He starts walking and some people got in the way and she was gone. Well, a few moments later, her mom in the hospital woke up and she said, told her daughter, I just had a weird dream. I dreamt that I was in a bar and I saw my son crying at the bar and he started walking to me and then I woke up. And the doctors... Uh, a doctor who was there who had been tending was able to verify this with the son, that that's what he saw independently and then verify it with the daughter, and then mom died that night. So you see these kinds of things. That's the kind of stories that we find, two to three hundred of these, which, so they are verified. Okay, so these are, this is a highly evidential case, and you think, well, then why haven't I heard about these? I'm not sure. Do you know there are there are thousands upon thousands of these cases. And in fact, they are in medical journals that there is a, there is a journal uh, that is related to this, that like kind of mentions in the thing um, there, one of the most famous books on this is called life after life. I don't know how credible it is, but it was one of the first that kind of brought attention to this sort of thing. Um, there is the big book of near death experiences there. I think a few years ago, uh, Gary Habermas wrote a book with somebody else about this. Um, there is a book by Dinesh D'Souza about it. Um, and then I mentioned some of them in my book, Death is a Doorway. But the bottom line is that there's a lot of other literature on it. I mean, it's, this is something that cannot be ignored. Um, there are beautiful examples. Um, I, I can't give you the source for this one. I've mentioned it many times. But one of my favorites comes from Gary Habermas. He talks about when he was at a university and he was speaking to a group of medical doctors and over on the left-hand side of the crowd was a an oncologist who was an atheist woman and on the right-hand side of the crowd was um an ear nose and throat doctor and and his wife was with him and uh somewhere in the, in the discussion he was talking about what people claim they experience when they go to this afterlife encounter and this is medical professionals listening and at some point the wife of this ear nose and throat doctor stands up and says you can stop right there. I've been to heaven and I can tell you about it. Well, after a few awkward moments, uh, the atheist oncologist on the other side of the room stood up and said, well, don't just stand there. Tell us about it. And she told how she was giving birth to her third child. Her, she had already had two sons. She was giving birth to the third son and she was bleeding out on the table. I think if I got this right. And she had, she was, she had no brainwave, no heart rate. And I can't remember if they said she was declared dead, but, but she, but she, I mean, it was bad news. And later she was resuscitated and she told Gary Habermas in this crowd, but in, in the intermediate time, I was in this place that was incredible. She, he, she said, I can try to describe it to you, but she said, I can tell you about the colors. The colors were amazing. And then she stopped herself and she said, no, because when I say color, you're just thinking of blue, green, red. These are colors that you can't imagine that are beyond what humans can perceive. And then she said, well, I can tell you about the music. And she stopped herself and said, no, because when I say music, you're thinking of Beethoven and Bach. And, and this is music that is far beyond anything that humans have ever been able to create. And she said, I guess I can't describe it to you. And he said, let me ask you this. Do you believe that you were really there? She said, I'm more convinced I was there than I am that I'm here right now. And then he asked her this telling question. He said, it's my understanding that one of the strongest bonds that human beings can have is that between a mother and her child. You had two sons already that you knew and loved. You had a husband. You had a child that you'd carried for nine months, but you'd not yet held in your arms. If you could have your way, would you have stayed in that place or would you have come back to be with that, those sons and, and that husband? And she looked at the ground and she pointed at her husband. And she said, I know how this makes me sound, but he could raise our children. I would have never left that incredible place. Now, that one is anecdotal. You say, Braxton, do you really believe that woman went to some intermediate state or to heaven or something? Listen, I don't know, but I'll tell you this. If the Bible is true, then that is incredibly consistent with what I expect to be the case about the afterlife. But the bottom line is there are a lot of these things that are evidential, that can be checked out. And I encourage you to, to check them out. Um, all right. So you might ask, well, but, you know, I hear people all the time, Internet atheists say no one really ever becomes a Christian because of apologetics or they think they can caveat it with this unfalsifiable claim. OK, some people do, but very, very few actually become Christians because of apologetics. Well, all I can do is continue on a weekly basis to point people to people that have become Christians or come back to Christianity from atheism because of because God used some kind of an apologetics with respect to this debate specifically. I want you to hear what this guy had to say. 
Hey, I'm here with a new friend. His name is Alex, and Alex came up to me after a lecture tonight, and he told me an interesting story that has to do with the value of debates. Uh, the first, the first time I ever heard of Mr. Mike McCona was through uh, the Mike McCona versus Matt Dillahelly debate. And uh, the reason I came across that debate is because I used to be an atheist and actually an anti-theist. And uh, it was after, it was actually after that debate that I started leading back into uh, Christianity. Yeah, man, that's awesome. So about this debate specifically, we see here that here is a here is a guy who heard this debate and became a Christian. So scoff all you want, but this debate was not good for atheism. All right, um, let's take a look at another example of what he brought. Uh, here's Lycona explaining uh, an example of extreme answered prayer. Let me give you one though, and it's not for me. And there's a reason I'm going to give this for someone else. It's from an atheist, someone who is today an atheist. Someone who is an atheist today, but when this happened, was a Christian. He told me we were going in an email exchange. This was, I don't know, less than 10 years ago. And, um, and he said, uh, uh, yeah, you know, resurrection. Yeah, well, I still don't buy it. And I said, well, you know, there's miracles. There's answered prayers. Yeah, I've been there, done that. You see, I used to be a Christian. And my dad was a deacon in a church. And we went to church. And there was, we had this all-night prayer meeting. It was a small church, but we really needed money. Um, and we had this all-night prayer meeting. Well, now I'm going to pick up with the email and quote him verbatim. One time, my church desperately needed $7,641 in order to keep going. After an all-night prayer meeting, my dad went to pick up the mail, and then it was a check for exactly $7,641 from someone who didn't even know the church needed the money, but had heard one of the pastors speak a few years ago. My dad contacted the giver, and she, and, and she said that after she'd heard the pastor speak, she felt God wanted her to put some cash in an annuity and give it to our church. The process took several years, and just days before, she decided to close the account and send the accrued money to the church, and it happened to be the exact amount that was needed right after an all-night prayer meeting. Now, this is an atheist telling me this, and a few lines later, he writes this. All right, here's what he said. I looked as hard as I could, but finally I realized I had no re good reasons to think God existed. Right after he told me about this answered prayer. But the, so there are these extreme answered prayers. I could give you a number of examples from my own life as well as those whom I've heard from others. Again, these would be class A answered prayers that would strongly suggest there's a supernatural component to reality. So this is amazing to me. And, and it is, it is a great, I mean, can you, can you imagine answered prayer to that extreme a case? I, I actually know a young woman right now who, um, who, who I care deeply about. I, she, she, uh, you know, is, is someone who used to be in one of our apologetics groups who's experiencing doubt. And she has stuff that maybe not to that extreme a case, but she has examples of God answering prayer in a very, very specific way, but still struggles with doubt on occasion. And I understand that doubt is one of the enemy's favorite ways to attack. But what I want you to realize is that is an incredibly specific sort of answer prayer. Maybe go back and listen to that again to get to catch it. And then the atheist now says, but I don't have any really good reason to believe. Are you kidding me? It, the other day I was, I was reading uh, Thomas Nagel's famous book, Mind and Cosmos, and he says in the introduction of the book, I'm just not one of those people, I don't have anything against people believing, I'm just not one of those people that has like that sensus divinitatis, which is what Calvin called the sense of the divine, you know. I just don't have that intuition that I see like this smiling happy face in everything I see, like I don't see this design. But then later in his book he argues a teleological sort of point. It's, it's amazing that people will basically acknowledge it and then be like, yeah, but. I mean, it's okay. Well, you know, if that's your position, then then uh, don't expect me to try very hard to convince you. I, I don't know what I can give give you to convince you. One of my favorite um, phrases over the past year and a half, I guess, comes from Mike Winger. And, and if it came from someone else, I don't know. And he said, look, my, my job is not to convince you. My job is to present uh, good arguments. Y your job is to be convinced by good arguments. That's basically a paraphrase of it. So, all right. Now, I, I want you to notice here, and we're about to get to uh, Dillahunty after this next clip. But what I want you to see here is what exactly Mike is trying to do in this case. And remember how I said it's a two-step approach. He's showing that there's a supernatural dimension to reality. And then he's using that to show that, look, when it comes to the resurrection, then it makes sense that Jesus would be raised because of this, uh, because there is a supernatural dimension to reality. So here's where he, here he argues that. You might argue that resurrections, our background knowledge shows that they don't occur. Well, it shows that they don't occur by natural causes. So, for example, we could say this uh, three-year-old girl, if I said this three-year-old girl 
bench press 300 pounds, we'd say, implausible. But what if we had this muscle man, a bodybuilder, who's got his hands on the barbell and he lifts it and assists her? Well, then all bets are off. That's a game changer, right? And the plausibility of her doing it on her own, it, it's off the table. Same thing with raising from the dead. By natural causes, uh-uh, implausible. But if God exists and wants to raise Jesus, all bets are off. That's a game changer. And so the plausibility... So now notice he used the word plausibility quite a bit here. It was in my preparation for my debate with Matt Dillahunty that I called this sort of reasoning, although I used something, I, I used a different piece of the puzzle than what he uses here, uh, recalibrated plausibility. I have a whole video called Recalibrated Plausibility. Just go back and look through my videos. It's the one that has Jesus and a rocket ship on the front of it. And the reason for that is here's the analogy. So where I do it is I say, all right, look, universally scholars agree, and you always have outliers, but universally scholars agree that Jesus thought of himself as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom, as if he was carrying a sign that said, watch my life and see what happens. And uh, then we know that he died by Roman crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Then after that, people had experiences that at least they interpreted as appearances of the risen Christ. Now, um, here's the, here, I think this, so if we just said Jesus rose from the dead, that, that may sound implausible on naturalism. But he's using the spiritual stuff, the supernatural element of, of, of the world. I, I used, uh, I used uh, Jesus' thoughts about himself during his earthly life that is uncontested among the scholarship. So let me use that for an example to make the point. So here's the example that I came up with, and I shared this with Mike, and he liked it. So I said, all right, let's imagine that um, you're in a coffee shop, and you, and, and you don't know anything about the NASA landing. You don't know anything about Neil Armstrong, none of that stuff. And you're in a coffee shop, and you say to uh, you encounter a group of people who claim that they just saw uh, a man walking on the moon. Can you believe it? This guy named Neil was walking on the moon. It's amazing. Now, if you don't know anything about the moon landing or anything else, you might be incredibly skeptical. And you might be justified in not accepting that. But then let's decide that later that day, you actually encounter, uh, you learn that during the 1960s, there was this man named Neil who was claiming that he was a part of NASA's special program and that, that he was going to walk on the moon. Okay, and then you learn about NASA and that they do have the capacity to do something like this. Well, now is it implausible what the people in the coffee shop were saying? No, it's incredibly plausible now because you actually know that a guy before this happened was claiming that it would that it would happen or or that it could happen in Neil's case. That it was probably going to happen. And then you found out that there was a power uh, capable of doing something like that that was actually working to do something like that. OK, the analogy is this. Jesus, during his earthly life, was claiming to be a part of God's special program, like Neil was claiming to be a part of NASA's special program. And just like NASA was a power sufficient to put a man on the moon, God is a force powerful enough to, put, to, to raise someone from the dead. And then you have the people afterwards in the coffee shop or in first century Palestine claiming that this had happened in either case. Um, the, the point is not whether the, the, the moon landing, people always say, well, yeah, but we have evidence of the moon landing. We don't have evidence. It's not the point. The point is, if you found those things out, which we know that according to the scholars, Jesus did claim that about himself. And, and we could go into why. I'm not just pointing to the scholars. I've argued for that in all my videos, why they think so and why it's reasonable to believe that and why you should believe that. Then the point is, it may seem implausible on naturalism, but now that you have this, this uh, predictive power of Jesus during his life, well, then now you actually have recalibrated the plausibility. And what Lyconia here is doing is he's saying, look, you, now that we know the super, there's a supernatural dimension to reality, um, this recalibrates the plausibility. It's not implausible just because of naturalism. It's now plausible because you know that naturalism isn't necessarily true. It's false uh, if, if, the, if his argument from these four criteria or his four uh, lines of evidence for the, the existence of a supernatural dimension to reality. So it recalibrates the plausibility. And I just love that because it goes along with what I've, I've been saying about this. All right, now let's hear Dillahunty and let's see what he has to say in response to this. And as far as we can tell, and science would acknowledge, we are barred from investigating anything beyond the natural world. If there is a God and it manifests in reality, that may in fact be detectable. In fact, I would argue that if your God doesn't manifest in reality in some detectable way, you cannot have a justification for believing. And most of us, when I was a believer and, and many of you sitting here, tend to talk about a God that is, does manifest in some detectable way. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're little God detectors who are detecting the undetectable. I mean, there's a contradiction there. There would be a contradiction if you weren't equivocating on what you mean by detectable. So notice that in the beginning of this, Dillahunty begins by saying, 
uh, science, you know, recognizes that we are somewhat barred from investigating the supernatural, right? We're looking at nature. The science deals with nature. Okay, great. And then he stops using nature and starts using reality. And this has happened in other of Dillahunty's videos where it's as though when he talks about nature, he's, he's talking about reality, like those are one and the same. So that when Lycona is arguing for a supernatural dimension to reality, what Dillahunty is hearing him say is, uh, you're saying there's something real that's not a part of reality? That doesn't make any sense. That would be a contradiction. And when you apply this to detection, he's saying, you're, it's like you're saying we've got a bunch of little God detectors for something that is not detectable. No, what we're saying is we have a number of people who are claiming to be detecting something not scientifically that is not scientifically detectable. There's no contradiction there. It's just that Dillahunty fabulously conflates and equivocates on what is meant by nature and what is meant by detectable. And that is a very important piece of the puzzle. Now, of course, like I was going to say later that, well, it may be that there is some way we could scientifically detect this and maybe not exactly like you're thinking. But of course, the deeper thing that we want to say here is um, that even if he was right, the science can't detect this. We can make inferences from science, and that's the important thing. We can look at the, the incredible design arguments that we have, and we can see that there's reason to believe that there's a God on the basis of the improbability of the fine-tuning of the universe for life to emerge, um, first life, abiogenesis. We, we, can, we can make inferences from science, and we're going to see some testing of that and some pressing of that earlier, but I just want you to notice that conflation there. And again, a repeated reliance on science. It's just always science, science, science. Well, science is wonderful. I'm not discounting science. I thank God for science. In fact, my belief in God makes sense of there being um, a, 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 a rational, a, a cosmos that we can rationally think about and investigate that, that has uh, uh, some uniformity in it. I, that, that all makes sense if there's God. I don't know that it makes sense if there's no God. See my debate review of uh, Michael Shermer and David Wood for that. But um, let, let's go on to um, hear another bombastic claim here. And I want you, when I play this, to watch Mike Lycona. I love that this caught Mike Lycona's face. I want you to watch how surprised Mike Lycona is here when Matt Dillahunty says that the supernatural has no explanatory power. Now, before I go there, explanatory power. So you have these different criteria for, say, historical investigation, but you can also use it for philosophy and other things. And one of the so something has explanatory power if, if it would be sufficient to explain a set of circumstances. Explanatory. Oh, I guess that would be explanatory scope. Scope would be that. Well, explanatory scope would be can it account for a number of details instead of just like one piece of this thing. So like with the resurrection, for example, we might say, okay, so Richard Carrier's idea that Jesus or that Paul was experiencing some kind of a grief hallucination, that he was persecuting the church. And then suddenly he felt so grief stricken about this, that he has this thing called conversion disorder. And then he comes to believe, okay, if that were true, that would explain Paul, but it wouldn't explain James. It wouldn't explain the empty tomb. It wouldn't explain all these other things, right? So that doesn't have explanatory scope. Okay, so you have to have explanatory scope. You also have to have explanatory power. And I was right. I should have said, shouldn't have corrected myself. Explanatory power is, does it account for, is it sufficient to account for the thing that we're talking about? If it's true, would it account for this? Matt Dillahunty is going to say the supernatural has no explanatory power. Are you kidding me? And I want you to watch Mike Lycona's face during this. Because the supernatural has no explanatory power. We explain things or we gain an understanding of the unknown by appealing to the known. Okay, so first of all, Mike is saying that like, because this is not even consistent with what Matt Dillahunty typically says. Typically, Matt will say, well, of course, the supernatural would explain everything and therefore it's an answer for nothing. Okay, that, that's to say it's got too much explanatory power, like it would explain anything. Uh, which is not exactly true because it wouldn't explain contradictory. It wouldn't allow for contradictory things. So we need to be more careful with how we phrase things and what we're saying exactly. Precision is important. But nevertheless, it's not, of course it has explanatory power. But then he says we, we explain things based on what we already have good reason to believe based on other things. Okay, so that, remember, is why Mike began by saying we have good reason to believe that the supernatural, there's a supernatural dimension to, to, uh, to reality. Um, that's the importance of pointing that out. And I think based on later comments, Matt understands that. But I also want to say here that the way that Matt argues this, and he won't admit to this, and if I'm wrong, Matt, I'm sorry, but the way I see this repeatedly is Matt will, this can never fulfill itself. Because, of course, we're trying to give you evidence for the existence of the supernatural or for a miracle with the resurrection. But you say, well, you have to have demonstrated that that's a real thing before you can use it as an explanation. 
Okay, that's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to establish it for you. No, because you can't you can't say that was supernatural because we don't know that there's supernatural. So the demonstration has to have a prior demonstration to get the demonstration. This whole thing becomes circular in your epistemology. It's 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 really problematic. I want to correct a mistake he makes here about William Lane Craig uh, as we as we talk about this two step classical method. Listen to what he says. When William Lane Craig has debated the resurrection, he acknowledges that he presupposes a foundational premise that a God exists specifically a God that is capable and desirous of resurrecting someone. This is a necessary component because you have to have this belief in order to even attempt to claim that raising from the dead is a plausible explanation to the facts surrounding an empty tomb. If you don't believe that there is a God, if you don't believe that people can be raised from the dead, it cannot be a plausible explanation. And so you have to begin with this foundation, which is why there are so many debates that are, hey, does God exist? Let's just talk about that over and over and over again. I admit it gets tiring. I'm sure it's frustrating for many people, but it's not a trivial point because if we debate the resurrection, as we will right now, the people who don't believe that a God exists are never going to be convinced that it's a plausible explanation or not rationally convinced. You have to start with that foundation. Okay, now this is great. I think Matt gets it. Matt understands, okay, look, uh, and I don't know if he studied this and came upon this or if he if he just noticed it. Uh, but the reality is we typically like people like William Lane Craig typically argue that God exists or in the case of Michael Icona here, that the supernatural is real before arguing for the resurrection, as I've said before, because it recalibrates the plausibility and makes it reasonable. Right. OK, uh, you've got a power sufficient to do that. OK, great. That's that's great. I'm glad you see that. Now, he misspeaks about William Lane Craig, and I, I don't think he intended this. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt or maybe he doesn't understand it, but I think maybe he does. He says that William Lane Craig presupposes God's existence to argue for the resurrection. No, sir. William Lane Craig <laughs> argues for God's existence and then moves to the resurrection. What could have given Matt that impression is there are debates. I can think of one. I, I don't know which one it was, but I remember it where William Lane Craig is asked to specifically debate the resurrection. So he says something like, well, typically I would have given a case for the resurrection or for God's existence first. So I'm having to presuppose it for my case here. Right. In other words, what he's saying basically is, I got good reasons to believe God exists. I can't give them to you now because of the point of this debate, but that's how I typically argue. So, um, like, you know, Craig is a classical apologist. Now, an interesting other, another thing that needs to be mentioned here is I have heard, I can't tell you where, and, I, and this is bad of me not to be able to source this, I, but I'm not going to go digging through and try to find it. But I've seen William Lane, I, I mean, I'm sorry, I've seen Matt Dillahunty complain about the fact that Christian apologists just want to debate God's existence instead of debating the Christian God's existence. In fact, it was because of that and because I agree with him that when we had our debate, I suggested, does the Christian God exist as the debate topic? So it's like he's saying, yeah, you need, you, you need, you know, argue for your specific God, not some God of the philosophers. Amen. But then here he says, you need to argue for the God of the philosophers. That's why we have all these debates. Which way do we want it? You know, I, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I think those are important things to mention. But yes, he understands now. And he even suggests that he understands that's why Mike does what he does. You got to give some explanation that there's a power sufficient to do this. And Mike does that by arguing that there's a supernatural dimension to reality. And I'm going to play this real quick here. This is I've covered this many times, but I want to make a different point here. Uh, Matt wants to say that it's basically God's fault that Matt doesn't believe if God exists, because God could have created a universe such that Matt would have believed. If there was a God who created the universe, had decisions about what kind of universe he wanted to make, and created this one in specifically, then didn't God specifically choose the universe in which I would lose my faith and become an atheist. Didn't God choose the universe in which we don't have access to confirm rationally, reasonably, the supernatural? Didn't God pick the universe where the single most important facet of his message is not clearly evidenced? I don't know. Okay, so now I've covered this almost every time uh, there's been a debate review of Matt Dillahunty. Uh, I actually have a short video um, that you can go look up. I forget what it's called, but it's, it's in the short videos playlist. It's got a, a young lady with blonde hair on the cover, so you'll be able to find it really easily in my face. Um, and and I, cover I respond directly to Matt in our debate about this issue. Um, but I want to make it so I'm not going to rehash all of that. 
But here's what I do want to say about this here that I, that I think is important. Did, did Why did God actualize a world where there's so little reason to believe or so little evidence? Two things about this, uh, and, and one where Matt wouldn't believe. Two things about this. One, I, I'm always blown away when atheists argue that God did it wrong in, when, when they're talking about, you know, God uh, doing it in a backwater town in, 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 you know, in Jerusalem, basically, with a guy who never wrote anything down and all that. What do you mean? To, like Hitchens used to do this all the time, talk about this as, and denigrate this idea. You do realize it worked, right? Like the whole world has heard the gospel. And yeah, we would not have told God to do it the way that God did it, but it worked out splendidly. So this idea that the way it was done was a bad idea or a bad strategy. Mm, yeah, not buying that so much. But secondly, a world where you're not convinced. Well, we know why you're not convinced, Matt. I, I'm sorry. I just have to say it. I've done too many videos on this. I've studied this man for too long. Your epistemology is structured such that it will not allow for the kind of evidence that would convince you. Secondly, what kind of world did God actualize? This, this would bother me a little bit if I were Matt. Just the mere possibility that God exists because he's open to the possibility that the Christian God exists. This would kind of haunt me a little bit. If there's even a possibility, a non-zero chance is you are in a world, Matt, where this God, if he exists, has been so loving and so merciful to you that he has sent dozens and dozens of apologists to stand across the debate stage from you and give you every imaginable reason to believe that it's true. These are reasons that have convinced physicists, historians, everyday folks in the pews, people on the street, um, every kind of person from every kind of culture and you have had the very best of debaters not 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 counting myself in that but you're standing across the stage from mike lycona you have had the very best of this that's the world god actualized a world where he loves you so much that he has pursued you to that degree that's the world that you live in now i, I want to go to a pretty straightforward statement that mike lycona makes in his rebuttal and this became kind of a linchpin of this debate Second, Matt goes by methodological naturalism to say that science we are bound uh, or barred, I should say, from investigating the supernatural. That's bunk. We are not barred. Now, a lot of scientists tie their hands behind their back. That's called methodological naturalism, where they're not allowed to consider the supernatural. But let me tell you, methodological naturalism, simply stated, is a safe space for skeptical scholars and scientists where they can hide from serious consideration from solutions that involve supernatural or God. You know, those uh, trigger words for them because it makes them uncomfortable. That's what methodological naturalism is. And it fails, and here's why. Let's suppose that astronomers have been watching a comet for years, and all of a sudden, they do some calculations. They say, this comet is going to slam into the moon's surface tomorrow. And so the next day, you have the Hubble Space Telescope and all these planetariums that are zoomed in on the lunar surface, and they watch, boom, as the impact happens. And as the lunar dust settles, there's a message embedded on the lunar surface that says God exists, and it's in Greek and Hebrew. Well, according to methodological naturalism, a scientist couldn't even affirm that the event had occurred. It would certainly be a supernatural event, and because of that, they couldn't even affirm that the event had occurred. Well, of course you could affirm the event occurred. Maybe you can't confirm as a scientist that God is the one behind it, but you could say this miraculous event occurred and leave the cause undetermined. That's why methodological naturalism fails. It actually, in the end, it could actually serve to be a science stopper. Okay, now I want to clarify what's being said here. So you heard the analogy that Mike gave. I've brought up this analogy many times. You might be confused by his statement there that why, why couldn't scientists confirm at least that this event occurred? Think about the resurrection. We're, we're honing in on the resurrection here with methodological naturalism. What people like Michael Icona typically do in an evidential case is they'll say something like, okay, let's just grant you that a historian can't conclude a miracle. By the way, that's granting far too much. There are no canons of historiography somewhere. There are general approaches, but, but it's far from agreed upon. But, but let's just say that. Let's say a historian can't conclude a miracle uh, took place. What people like Mike will argue is, look, you can conclude that Jesus was alive and died by Roman crucifixion. And perhaps you can conclude that there's good reason to believe that Jesus was alive at a later date. Okay, those are two claims that are completely natural, that Jesus was alive and died 
And here's a separate claim that at this later point, Jesus was alive. Now, why would methodological naturalism have a problem with that? Because the obvious explanation is that somehow Jesus rose from the dead, and that's not within the purview of methodological naturalism, even though it could very well be the best historiography. Now, what's the parallel with the moon? If that's the case, then scientists shouldn't be able to conclude about the moon. Well, there was this moment at, at T1 where the moon was as it normally is. And then there was this moment at T2 where sometime later where it said this on the surface of the moon after an asteroid hit it. Why? Because just like in the case of the resurrection, that obviously hints at something supernatural. And in the moon situation, it obviously hints at something supernatural. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you're going to say that the, we can't conclude that Jesus was dead, buried, and then later alive again because you think it involves a miraculous resurrection and you're not willing to go there, then you shouldn't be able to say that about the moon if you're going to be consistent. That's, that's the point, I think, that Mike is trying to make. And uh, I think that's an interesting point. You should still be able to make the conclusion. You may not like it, Matt, but if there's good historical reason to believe that Jesus was alive and dead, and then later good historical reason to believe that Jesus was alive again, um, or, or alive at a later time, then that's historiography. And you, then you can take off your, your historian coat and say, the best explanation is that God raised Jesus from the dead. All right, let's, let's move on to uh, this next thing. This is another big moment. I'm telling you, this debate is one of my favorites. It's just chock full of great analogies like this. Here we go. He says, Ehrman comes up with the definition of miracles, the least probable explanation. Ehrman is just simply wrong here. Listen, in my doctoral research, I found 23 definitions for miracle. In fact, two of them are Ehrman's different ones that he gets. If miracles are the least probable explanation, really? Well, so what if I were beheaded here on stage by some terrorists and they fled, leaving my headless corpse here on the stage? And then you all leave the auditorium, an hour later you're outside of the auditorium and you're talking to the police and media, and I come walking out of the auditorium, head attached, smiling, scars on my neck. I said, I've been to heaven. And God brought me back in order to verify the truth of Jesus' gospel message. And by the way, Matt, while I was up there, I talked to this relative of yours that died 10 years ago, and they shared with me a private conversation that only you and that relative had I could not have possibly known. So is a miracle the least probable explanation? And since uh, historians must choose the most probable, we'd have to say anything, even group hallucination, is more probable? No, that's methodological naturalism. That's the safe space for skeptics. Okay, you've probably, if you've listened to this channel for long, heard me talk about that analogy. And it's partly because of how Matt responds later, and we're going to get to that. But I want you to notice here, Mike is pointing out, this is the point he's making. He's like, would you really say that in that case where my head's cut off and I, it reattaches later and I talk to you about a dead loved one or a friend and a conversation I had with him that only you and that person would know about, you wouldn't say that a miracle is a good explanation for that, maybe the best explanation for that? You would hold out for some other naturalistic explanation? Really? That, that's, that's what we're dealing with? That, that's why he's laying out. He's laying it out to, to cast aspersions onto uh, Bart Ehrman's position there. All right, now we're going to let Matt speak back now about this safe space thing. You'll remember Mike said it's a safe space for uh, skeptics. Methodological naturalism is a safe space for skeptics that, that get triggered when you use these terms. All right, let's hear what Matt has to say. How do you tell if either of them are correct? Methodological naturalism is the foundation of science. It's not a safe space for skeptics. It is a recognition from philosophy of science that until we actually have the ability to investigate and confirm that the supernatural exists, we don't get to appeal to it. It doesn't bar us from testing claims that are attributed to the supernatural. No, no scientist, if that comet hit and spelled out something, no scientist on the grounds of methodological naturalism or any other scientific model would be prohibited from attesting that the event occurred. They would just be in a position of, we don't know how or why this occurred because we don't have a model that we can use to apply to this. Okay, so missing the point, I think a little bit here, Okay, the point is, right, the methodological naturalist is in a pickle because if they're going to affirm this, they're going to end up having to affirm under the table. What Matt just says they'll just have to say, well, we don't know how, why or how this happened. You know, maybe in a spot like that, they would have to, right? Because everyone with a telescope can look up and see it in the night sky, right? Well, when we come to historiography, this is the problem here. We, we should be able to say that Jesus was dead and that at a later point Jesus was alive, if that's what the best history points to, and then say we don't know how this happened. 
Can you give us that? Because if you can give us that, that's not looking good for atheism. That's not looking good for naturalism. All right, let's move on to uh, let, let's move on to how this is in the discussion back and forth. Here's what where Mike questions him about this. And I think this is where I've had to edit out a little bit. So uh, just so you know that I'm not editing out anything that's very important to Matt's case. I'm not being unfair. The video is linked in the description. I encourage you to go watch the whole debate. The whole thing is great, but, I, but it would have been a five minute clip and, and you don't want that. So, so I, I just, I've, I've edited this down, but I think fairly. All right. I gave you that example of the beheading. I'm beheaded up here. Everybody's out of the auditorium. You've already seen my headless corpse. I come walking out an hour later and you all see me alive. And I testify that I met someone in heaven and they shared with me a private conversation that they had had with you that you know is, is correct. Now, wouldn't our understanding that that is impossible by natural causes, wouldn't that justify you to infer that a supernatural event has indeed occurred? Yes, yeah, so I, I like this question because it proposes the very thing that never happens. Uh, well, there's a lot of so it, we, we, it goes to the extreme to say, ah, if we could, if, we, if this happened, would you then accept that there's a supernatural explanation? And the short answer is no. What I would accept is that the null hypothesis that people's heads don't come back on, uh, that's cl clearly disproved. The reason that you came back from the dead, the explanation for why and how this happened, I don't know. Um, I'm not precluding the supernatural. There needs to be a demonstration that this is the cause. I, I, didn't, I didn't ask whether that would convince you that God exists and raised me from the dead, okay? Or that, that my claim. But given all that data that you saw me beheaded, sure. now I've come back, I'm alive, you see the scars, and I repeat that uh, private conversation you had had with that person, would that be enough to convince you that a supernatural event had occurred? So here's where we get into a little bit of the word thing. I think by what you're asking, the answer is yes. But what I'm specifically addressing is that I don't get to call that supernatural. I, what, I, what it would be is there's something new and weird and undiscovered and unknown within nature. I would fully accept that it happened. You're, if you're asking, do I, would I then be reasonably convinced that the best explanation is that something beyond nature did this. I don't know. You don't it, even know if that would convince you. Hey, based on my current understanding, this is impossible given what we know about nature. Therefore, I'm going to call it supernatural. With the acknowledgement that later on somebody might find a natural explanation, my answer is you don't have justification to call it supernatural. What you're expressing there is a discomfort with saying, I don't know what the explanation Not is. Not at all. I'm just let me, one final thing. I would just say that if someone was beheaded like I'm given and you were still unwilling to say supernatural, then, Matt, I think the problem is your epistemology there. I don't think there's anything practically that could convince you. Right? <laughs> right? Now, it's weird. I, you have to go back and watch this because I think, that I'm sorry, maybe I'm wrong. I, I feel like there's an, I, I always try not to judge motives, but it really seemed like there was an attempt to dodge here on Dillahunty's part because it, it, at first he says no. And then he says, I think by the way you're asking this, my answer is yes, but I don't get to conclude that. And then later he loops back around to you're just uncomfortable with, I don't know. And then he, he doesn't, whenever Lycona says, well, I just think there's a problem with your epistemology. If you're still saying, I don't know. And Dillahunty doesn't come back and say, no, 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 I said yes, because he didn't say yes. He said yes, and then he said a bunch of stuff. I'm trying not to use the phrase word salad that then comes back around to, I don't know. And so uh, the point still stands. And plus, I brought that to Matt in our debate, and he didn't say, no, 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 I would believe that. No, th this is something that's, that's on record. I mean, back in 2014, 2015, when he had a debate with Matt Slick, he said, if someone parted an ocean in Jesus' name, would you then believe something supernatural happened? No. Okay, it's your epistemology. It's your epistemology. This has been documented over and over and over again. To the degree that anyone who's moved by this, Matt Dillahunty's opinions about what should count as good and bad evidence should have no hold on you. All right, so now I want to show you this next thing. The reason I'm showing you this, remember I said this thing was kind of all over the place. The resurrection was a part of it, but that didn't get as focused on as much. So maybe I'm leaving some stuff out that was important to that discussion. I don't know. But they got on this business of Paul and whether or not Paul ever encountered Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. This likewise happened a little bit um, in 
with the question of whether uh, Paul encountered Jesus on the cross in the McClatchy debate. Um, I'm recording this the day before I'm supposed to do a recording on the McClatchy debate. So I don't know whether we end up covering that or not. But I think it's important to note here that this is an example where Matt always tries really hard not to have any burden of proof. Now, I'm not saying why. I'm just saying that's how he structures things. Remember, he says in this debate, he says this debate is not does did the resurrection happen? And Mike's over here saying, yes, it did. And I'm over here saying, no, it didn't. It's I don't know. I haven't been presented enough evidence because that then you don't have a burden of proof. If you say, no, Jesus did not rise from the dead. Now you've got to shoulder that claim. How do you know Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Likewise, about God's existence. How do you know God doesn't exist? So I'm just saying I'm not convinced. I lack a belief. Um, that's what's going on there. So every now and then, because he speaks so much, Matt will accidentally make a claim that then he's challenged on because now he shoulders a burden of proof. In our debate, he, he, I called it a dodge because what we were dealing with was, okay, you don't believe in libertarian freedom. Do you believe determinism is true? Because that's it. Libertarian freedom or determinism. Compatibilism is determinism. And he's, well, I'm just saying, how do I know that libertarian freedom is true? When he has gone on record affirming determinism before, I think, you know, uh, that's certainly his position. So, but he, but he, I think was trying to dodge because he knew if I say determinism is true, now I've got to defend determinism. Likewise here, he messed up and accidentally shouldered some burden of proof on this claim that I'm sure he didn't think he would get challenged on about Paul, whether Paul ever saw Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And I think you see here where this is why Matt does it the way he does it, because when you have to shoulder your burden of proof, it gets hard for the atheist with almost anything. It's hard for Matt. So you'll hear what I'm talking about when you watch this. Okay, so I want to look at Paul here because uh, you went after him. Um, you said Paul never met Jesus. He wasn't around for many of the events. How do you know that? Well, what I'm saying is that there is no attestation that this occurred. The story of Paul is that he was opposed to Christianity and he had the experience on the Damascus Road. Um, there's this was years after Jesus purportedly died. I'm just going with what the gospel reports. Um, I'm not saying that I'm convinced that that is in fact the case. Okay, because I know Ehrman claims this too, and it's like, you don't have a shred of evidence for that. In fact, why does Paul hate the Christian movement? Well, it's, he, the, null, he, it's the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis would be that Paul never met Jesus in person while he was alive. Right, but there's no evidence that that's the case. In fact, I would think that he did. Um, I think okay. it's plausible, it, perhaps even probably that every time you turn around in the Gospels, you find that Jesus is going on some kind of a trip to, to Jerusalem to celebrate some sort of a uh, festival or something, and he's making commotion in the temple. There's, Paul was a Pharisee, according to his, his own testimony. He's going up through the, the, the ladder, and is climbing the ladder is doing pretty well in it. I think there's a really good chance he was probably there at Jesus' trial before the high priest. Um, but to say that Paul had never met Jesus, which you made that claim, that he wasn't around for any of Jesus' events, you were making assertions there without a shred of evidence. No, um, no, no, I was expressing the null hypothesis. You are personally convinced that Paul probably met Jesus. Do you have any evidence that I, he did? I think there's a good chance. Uh, well, a good chance isn't evidence that he actually no, but, but did. I, I, I'm not even, that's not my argument. I'm, you're the one making the argument here. I'm saying you don't have the evidence for uh, that. I was expressing the null hypothesis, which is... Well, if you make an assertion, you bear the burden of proof. See, that's the important thing here is he, he messed up, he made a claim, and now you got to defend that claim. I mean, it wasn't terribly important to Mike's case that Paul encountered Jesus during his earthly ministry. So he, that's why he's like, I, no, I'm not, I'm not arguing that he definitely did. I'm not supposed to present you evidence that he did. I'm saying I don't know. I'm actually saying I think it's likely, but I'm not claiming, I'm not making an argument about this. You're the one who made the claim he never encountered Jesus during his earthly ministry. When you make a claim, you, sh you shoulder the burden of proof. So stop with this null hypothesis. It's enough with the null hypothesis stuff, okay? We've heard that. That's enough with that. Uh, you now need to demonstrate what you're saying, right? And when that happens, it's not, that, that's why Matt tries to run from that. I won't say he tries to run from that. That's why he structures everything so that that never happens. But occasionally by accident, it does happen. And we see what happens and maybe that's why. So that didn't go well for Matt. Here's another thing that, here's a moment where Matt is confronted with the modern evidence on this, the scientific, at least, you know, this is, this is modern scientific evidence. Um, 
in the journals, things like that. Um, and and Matt's confronted with that and is speechless. I want you to see how this ends. Yeah, we this. do, but just because there's a lot of counterfeits doesn't mean there aren't authentic ones. There are plenty of authentic Correct. ones. And so how do you tell 300 which ones? 300 of them. So you say there's 300 authentic. How do we verify that these are actually what they claim to be? Because there's this corroborated data from at least one external source. I mean, you know, the, I'm not trying to be snarky. I mean, this can happen in a debate like this where you you don't really know what to say, right? And you just kind of look around for somebody else. I mean, <laughs> what is going on there? Maybe Leighton said something and we just didn't hear it on the mics and he's, you know, maybe it's time or something. I, I don't know. But, but, the, but the point is uh, they were talking about the near death. I should have prefaced. They're talking about the near death experiences, I think. And, uh, you know, yeah, a lot of them are fake. And a lot of this supernatural paranormal stuff is is not real. But here we got 200 to 300 cases with an external referent or an external, uh, you know, person who can testify to this or whatever. And it's been all written up. That's how we know. And Matt's, you know, I mean, I'm telling you, when people take issue with this debate, it says more about them than it does about the debate because they don't like they get queasy about the paranormal stuff. They get queasy about Ouija boards and, and all this kind of thing. I'm telling you, listen, listen to me. Uh, I've run into Christians who, if you talk about demons and stuff like that, they roll their eyes. I'm sorry. That is a system dependent belief. Some of this stuff is system dependent that we survive. Death is a system dependent belief. So, you know, the, the idea that someone, an atheist or a Christian would roll their eyes at this debate, I don't get it. You may not, this stuff may not get talked about that much, but maybe that's a problem. It should be talked about more because the average Joe out there who's not all wrapped up in the worldview discussions doesn't have such a hard time believing some of this stuff. L lastly, th this is the last clip of the day, and it, it just goes off in a complete other direction. But I just think Lycona's response to this is hilarious because, again, what we're seeing is a skeptic trying to tie the supernatural claims to stuff that just everybody knows is bonk. Everybody knows that's crazy. You don't want to be identified with that. So you need to drop this thing too. That's how it feels. And, and so he asked him about aliens. The, oh, it always comes up aliens. You don't believe in aliens. Do you, you say you believe in the resurrection because of these eyewitnesses. What about all the eyewitnesses to aliens and all that kind of thing? Here's how that goes. Do you believe that people are abducted by aliens? No, but I would be open to it. But I, I, don't think, I don't think the evidence is, is good enough for it. Didn't go the way you thought it would, did it? Yeah. I mean, what I was planning to say if this came up in my debate with Matt was I was going to say, listen, I haven't looked into that stuff, but, I, but maybe there's something to it. There's enough going on that where there's smoke, there's fire, there's something perhaps going on. But the reality is that um, if, you, if you can give me a case for alien life that is as powerful as the case for God's existence that comes from the Kalam cosmological argument, you'll find me with a tinfoil hat in the middle of the desert tonight because I haven't seen anything like that. Now, you say, well, they do have something like that. Okay, let me tell you what about this alien thing. Mike goes on to argue on evidential grounds, which I don't think Matt expected, why given the distance from the nearest habitable planet and the speed of light and all these kind of things, it's really unlikely they would have gotten here, but maybe it's something supernatural like, like the demonic or something. That's what Hugh Ross, who's an astronomer, argues in his book. Um, and recently there was a debate, I think, on Modern Day Debates or somewhere where, where Hugh Ross presented that. And we have an episode here on this channel where I go through that and give the various uh, data points on that. But the thing is, no, we're not throwing that out. If there's good evidence, then there's good evidence. Something might be happening. Now, we're not jumping to little green men, but we're saying, hey, it seems like maybe something's going on here. We don't know what, but there's something going on. And you thought we'd throw it out. You thought we'd be like, well, we don't want to be thought of as these people that believe in aliens. Uh, well, hold on. We want to follow the evidence. We're not, we're not saying it because it doesn't go with our favorite way of taking in evidence, which is scientific naturalism, that we're going to throw it out. No, we want to take in all the ways that humans take in information. Yeah, science, testimony, uh, personal experience, um, historiography, philosophy. We're open to all of that. We're not going to narrow it down. We want to be free thinkers. So we're open to all those things. And if that means that, yeah, there's actually good evidence for some supernatural stuff or there's good, there's something going on with this UFO sort of thing. We're not saying it's aliens. We don't know. But if there's good evidence, there's good evidence. Don't be so narrow minded. That's the that's the takeaway there. Be a free thinker. That's what we try to do as Christians. So anyway, um, I really enjoyed this. This is one of my favorite debates. 
I wanted to do, I can't believe I hadn't already covered it. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you took something away from it. The ultimate, at the end of the day, we didn't talk much about the resurrection. Let me tell you this. Jesus rose from the, from the dead. We've got a whole playlist on that on this channel. And uh, the reason he did that, he died on the cross for you and for me and for the sin of the world so that you could ha be a part of a kingdom and so that you could know that you could be with him forever and you could have a family and you could get an inheritance and you not have to go to a place that we call hell. Listen, I want you to be a part of that. Just trust the Lord, repent of your sins, and I believe that he will forgive you and you will be a part of that kingdom. I'd love to hear about it if that's happened to you. Listen, if you enjoy the kind of stuff that we do on this channel, I'd love it if you'd help us out on patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. You can give just a little bit every month and it will actually uh, benefit. I hope it'll benefit you. It'll help us do more with what we're doing, but you get a lot of free stuff too. All kinds of stuff. Five full seminary level classes on apologetics. Um, also eBooks, lots of eBooks, uh, a Facebook group that is just for patrons. Uh, in the future, we're going to do some other things. Uh, there's all kinds of episodes that you've never seen before. Listen, I hope you'll check that out and prayerfully consider just giving a little bit. If you enjoy this program, I mean, listen, we, you get this stuff for free. And I'm not going to try to guilt you, but if you're the kind of person that if you live near me, you might buy me a, coffee, a cup of coffee at Starbucks every now and then for 3 or $4. Hey, go give that at Patreon. I'd really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I love every one of you. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Radio.